Hello, and welcome to A Matter of Faith, a Presby podcast, the podcast where we respond to your questions and comments on issues of faith, social justice, and church life. Don't be afraid to write in and ask your question, because if it matters to you, it matters to us, and it just might be a matter of faith. Whether it be faith in God, faith in others, or faith in yourself, We are brought to you by the Presbyterian Peacemaking Program and Unbound, the interactive journal on Christian social justice for the Presbyterian Church USA. I am your host, Lee Cato. And I'm your host, Simon Dune. Without further ado, let's dive into today's questions. Hey, Lee, how are you doing today? I'm good, Simon. We don't normally do this. (laughs) I know, you know, I'm just feeling, today I'm feeling so energized you know what i'm saying kinda i kind of know what you're saying i am not as energized uh i feel in my spirit but i can tell that you are energized today Uh, yep well you know i'm feeling so energized because we have some great questions written in from our audience like this first one which reads so I attended a Presbyterian youth conference for the first time a few years back, and we did these activities called energizers. I'm still not quite sure what they are. What are they exactly, and what purpose do they serve? What are your thoughts? Lee, what are your thoughts on energizers? I have so many thoughts. Simon. And what are they? <laughs> I uh, So as we were preparing for this podcast i was telling simon you know like i didn't i was raised presbyterian but i didn't really get involved in the presbyterian church um until i was a little older but i was introduced to energizers at camp because apparently that is just it just kind of infiltrates this church and that's one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about it and so i remember being asked to lead them but really not really enjoying it at all and wondering what exactly, like like wondering just why. And if you don't know what an energizer is, an energizer is basically a choreographed dance to a certain song, to probably the same songs, and they're probably still using the same ones now. And so in conferences and things like that, to kind of break the ice and kind of loosen people up, and if, and if you're a little, you know, uncomfortable, this could make you really more uncomfortable, actually actually, but to kind of break the ice, they do these dances called energizers to get the energy up, I guess. And I remember um, being asked to do this in college and then realizing uh, that I just really didn't like it. And, And then a few years later, I brought some people into a conference that didn't normally attend a Presbyterian conference before. And and this was at a conference for adults and they wanted to do energizers. Usually this is like a youth thing, but there were young, I mean, it was adults, young adults, but it was adult and they started dancing. And the people that I brought into this conference and into like the Presbyterian culture quotes, I'm doing quotes right now. were like, what in the world is this? Like, this is bizarre This is something that they're not used to. It was kind of a glimpse into like this kind of stereotypical Presbyterian culture. And yeah, it makes it made me really think about, you know, the things that we do within the church that seem in some ways can seem exclusive and not just energizers, but a lot of different things, a lot of stereotypes that happen in the church 
kind of inner language and inner things that happen that people from the outside come in and they're just like, what in the world? And it can also happen so much so that it is exclusive, that it can kind of be off-putting. And so we want, so this question came up because of that. Now, not everybody has my experience, but I do think it is in some ways for me, it it's, it's kind of a balance of, I don't know, it does make me more uncomfortable than it does make me comfortable. But on the other side, I, I think people like it. But another way is another side of that is people from the outside look in and are wondering, you know, what, <laughs> what is this? And we can also argue that it is it, it can also be very white that I don't that I think that could be an interesting topic to talk about. But I know Simon is of another opinion. Correct. Yeah, well, I, I somewhat disagree, not disagree, but I have a different experience with regards to energizers. But first of all, thank you for sharing your experience, Lee. Because again, I can definitely see why for some people it would be uncomfortable. I personally really like energizers. Um, As you were saying, energizers are songs that are usually accompanied with hand and body movements. I don't know if I would necessarily call them a full dance, but they're they're simple. They're a little simpler than a dance per se. But, you know, they've got some hand and body movements. They're usually up, upbeat and very peppy. The one that comes to mind most often, if people are familiar with it, is Kirk Franklin's Revolution, which has some corresponding arm movements to go with it that, I don't know, really gets you in the spirit. And yeah, I think the purpose of Energizers is to get everyone excited and get them hyped for worship. Uh, sometimes the the song or the movements may correspond with the theme of the conference that you're attending or for that particular day's worship. And usually you're not just doing them on the spot. I mean, you are, but Usually the instructors for or worship leaders will teach everyone uh, how to do the motions. So personally, I do enjoy participating because there's this kind of energy that gets created when everyone is doing the same movements to a song. Energizers are usually pretty expressive, but also a little silly at times, which I personally find nice. But I can also see why other people might look at that and be like, that's a little weird or that's not really for me. And it's funny that you brought up the, you know, the bringing in someone in for the first time and their reaction to it, because the first time I ever did it was at a Presbyterian youth conference when I was in middle school. And, you know, our our church youth group rolled up and came into worship. We came in and they started doing I think revolution might have been the first one, actually, that we that we did. And I remember our youth group had never done anything Presbyterian outside of our one single congregation. And suddenly all these people are on the stage or doing these movements to this song and people around us are just doing it. And we look at each other and we said, are you going to do that? Are we doing this? Am I doing this? Are we doing this? And in the end, some of us did it. Some of us did not. Um, I was one of the ones that did go figure. And I found it was fun, but I also understand that some people might not. It, there's also the fact that you have to be able-bodied to completely participate in energizers. I mean, obviously they can be adapted, but it's good that if if a congregation or a conference wants to use them, then to be sure to provide alternatives for people who are not completely able, able-bodied. I also think with regards to, to energizers specifically, often when young people are given the opportunity to participate in worship, especially after attending a youth conference, the default, uh, the sort of default assumption of 
congregation members when they ask the young people to participate is, oh, you did energizers at that youth conference, right? You can lead energizers for the congregation, which is great. Some people may be very inclined to do that. But if someone wasn't comfortable doing it at the conference, as you were saying, Lee, they may not be comfortable doing it in front of their own congregation. And there's also just the fact that young people have so much more to offer than just leading energizers as part of worship and as part of reflecting their experience at a conference. And so that's just sort of my thoughts on on using them. But I I enjoy them, but I recognize they're not for everybody. Yeah, and I appreciate that. I think sometimes it may come off that, you know, if you don't like it, then what's up? You know, and I love dancing. I'll go out, I'll dance all night long. I'll get on the karaoke stage and sing all day long. But for some reason, yeah, when when it's in that space. Uh, um, and so I have no problem with people who do energizers. But I think we really wanted to talk about this in in kind of a way that's like, it's not just about energizers. It's like, how are we cultivating like, a culture within the Presbyterian church that is unique and that is that, but needs to be inclusive, that needs to be uh, porous to allow other expressions to come through different ways of being. In some ways, I do see many of the Energizer songs. There are a few by Black gospel artists. And and it, and it, it is a conversation that a very white church has used used the have used these songs to create these energizers. Yeah, and and that interplay, I'm always the one that's going to talk about like systems. I'm always going to be the one to talk about justice. That's another thing that we don't normally talk about Simon. This is what makes me and Simon very like different. Of course, Simon also talks about justice and things like that, but we ha- we have very different deliveries. We'll just say that. But I do think it's also just very interesting. And when it comes to other things like in the church, in the Presbyterian church specifically, that kind of gets this like culture, a Presbyterian culture that can sometimes be very white and very non-inclusive of other ways of, of creating a Presbyterian culture, if that makes sense. Like Chacos, um, Birkenstocks, um, and people out there who are listening to this know this, like people are listening to this and they know what we're talking about. Mumford and Sons, acoustic guitars, things like that. What is that saying for the people who are coming from the outside and looking at the church that I love looking at the Presbyterian church and, and what are they seeing? In some ways it can be very exclusive. And I've seen it in some ways about, yeah, like the certain people, you know, or um, they say Presby, Presby celebrities, things like that. And so I think we're the, one of the reasons why we want to talk about that is just to bring that up and not to criticize people for living into, you know, to what they like and what they gravitate toward. I'm not saying that at all, but I do think it is an interesting thing to talk about just because I've experienced it some way from the outside looking in and saying, huh, interesting. And there are some things where I do kind of live into that is kind of a cult cultivated in the Presbyterian church world. But I also caution and say, how is that also ways that we're excluding? How is it kind of a white way of, of being? And how are we perpetuating systems that 
aren't allowing other ways of being and other ways of expression to kind of permeate that. And I think we're doing better at that. I really do. But I also know it's all still there. And so, so yeah, I just wonder about that. Well, I think there's also something to be said as, as you were saying, if someone new is coming into the space and the first thing that they see is everyone doing this dance, not exact dance to movements. There's nothing wrong with that. Again, there are other traditions and and cultures that do that very well. And it is an ingrained part of their culture for the, for the Presbyterian space, because it's specific to certain contexts. I think it could, it can come off as, does everyone do this? Is we didn't do this at my church. Do other Presbyterian churches do this? That was a question I legitimately had as a middle schooler. I was like, are we missing something at my Presbyterian church? This is not what I understood it that you didn't have to do this. This is not what it means to be Presbyterian. Now, again, I say that as someone who loves energizers, but just representing that the, or understanding rather that the various ways that we represent, we represent ourselves to, to those who are coming into our, into the circles uh, should generally be open and accepting and not that energizers aren't, but that everyone's going to come into it with a different understanding of what those activities are, what they mean, and level of comfortability. Yeah, and meeting people there. And I'm really glad you said about able-bodied, like ableism within it. We all we need to mention that too. Um, and I'm really glad you said that. And and yeah, and when I first encountered, and I'll say it is Presbyterian culture, and I'll say a lot of it is white Presbyterian culture. Although, I mean, I mean, people of all races. Uh, participate in in all this but i also think that yeah it is kind of a balance of where yeah where that inclusivity and exclusivity are and the presbyterian jokes that happened like the frozen chosen i've attended many black presbyterian churches some korean presbyterian churches some hispanic presbyterian churches they ain't frozen at all and very expressive. And even growing up, we may as well have been kind of Baptist because we would shout out sometimes. We would say amen sometimes. And so I think it's those kinds of things. It's like, how do we both open up, not exclude? Because do you can do energizers all day long? I think that's great. But I think opening it up to a certain way of opening up the culture more to include a variety of different ways that Presbyterians worship and interact and, and create community is, is something that I hope to see more of. Not all of us are frozen chosen. Not all of us are. That's the biggest joke, I think. Not all of us sit in the back pew. I think that's also a joke. So those kinds of things I hope we can continue to break down because I do think it can be an excluding type of way. Um, but again, if you're a pro energizer, no shame. Just not all of us are. Ready for the next question, Simon? Let's do it. So our next question that we are going to talk about is one about paying attention, paying attention in church. So the writer of this question asked, I just can't pay attention through a full worship service, particularly through the sermon. Don't tell my pastor. Things go too long and I start to space out. Am I bad? Do you recommend any strategies to help maintain focus and attention? Wow. Simon? 
That's a very real and relatable question. Uh, first of all, I would say don't feel bad. We've all spaced out during church, especially during those early morning services. I'm just going to go ahead and admit that. So strategy number one, if your church allows coffee in the sanctuary, don't be afraid to bring your cup of joe, your cup of coffee with you. If you think that's going to help you be more attentive, it's a simple one. If you're allowed to have coffee. I would recommend actually trying to get involved in worship in some way, um, participating in some way. I always feel that I feel more active and engaged and less spacey when I have a, a part to play or a role in the service. It doesn't have to be anything big. It could just be reading scripture or reading or leading a part of the liturgy, like call to worship or prayer of confession. It could be being an acolyte. So lighting the candles at the beginning of the service and putting them out at the end. Or if you're musically inclined, maybe considering being a part of the music worship team or the choir. Those are just ways that you can get involved and feel more like you're participating and have agency and are contributing to the service and probably more likely to pay attention as well. And if you're really struggling, you can always sit there and read the Bible. I can't tell you the number of times as a kid that I got bored during worship. And so I just picked up the Pew Bible that was right in front of me, just opened to a random page and read some of it. At least I was engaged in some way. I was still engaging with the word, still got something out of church. And if all else fails and you space out, it's okay. We believe in forgiveness. It's all good. You're only human. Just do what you can. Do your best. What do you think, Lee? Yeah, I think that's those are great suggestions. And I also, and this may be me just speaking to pastors out there, because I do think that in some ways, delivering sermons, preaching has morphed. And, and I wonder about the question of like, how do we cultivate, you know, a culture of really of many teaching elders who do a lot of the preaching, not saying all teaching elders are solely preachers, but, but what does it mean to, I don't know, be more um, succinct, succinct, to be more straightforward to um, it used to be that ministers would preach a long time. And in some traditions that is, that is something that, has carried on, but in many traditions, like the black church, sermons can go on for a long time, but but you would never know because of the engagement alongside call and response of churches, of congregations, and this relationship they have toward the minister. And so, and even growing up, going not necessarily to Presbyterian churches, but we would also go to like the Baptist church or whatever. It was a different dynamic between the congregation and the minister. There was a kind of a call, yeah, a call and response type of thing. And so I wonder about that too. How can, even as a congregant, that I think oftentimes can kind of feel in some ways powerless because it's like, oh, you don't, you don't challenge the the pastor, or you don't, you don't try to question how it's always been. Um, and so, and, and I think working and getting involved and seeing how to create, to be creative around worship too. Yeah. I think, I think there are, there could be partnering ways to really develop worship in many, many different ways alongside the pastor and alongside sessions or alongside committee members. There's always a worship committee. 
So it's like, how do you create some sort of relationship there? Um, I know in our book of order and me being a teaching elder myself, there is something in there that like the pulpit is like, that is when a preacher preaches from that, that is the word. And that is something that technically you can't really challenge in some ways if I'm getting that right. And if I'm not somebody write in about it. But I think in many ways that needs to, we need to start talking about how to be engaging and how to, de- how to really develop a, a relationship. And I see this in a lot of white churches, a relationship with the congregate and the minister. It's like, there has to be some form of back and forth way of engaging that is a little more creative than just listening, you know, to somebody speak for that long. Now, for me, if I'm preaching, it might be a maximum of, of 12 minutes. It's known that if it's any more people kind of, especially if you're not like engaging, you know? So I do think it is a, um, it shouldn't always have to be on the, the congregant to stay engaged because we're all human and we all have different ways of learning and different ways of engaging. And I think, I think that's also changing within the church because we're realizing people learn in many different ways. People have many different abilities. And so, yeah, having those creative conversations with a pastor that is hopefully open to that um, because of it's happening over and over to find ways to, because it won't be just you. I'm sure it's not just you. <laughs> um, it's not, you're not the only person that is experiencing that. There's people all over. Um, and it's, I think it's one of the reasons why many people have stopped going uh, to church is that the engagement and, and finding ways to really, yeah, to, to really develop a relationship in that worship space has been hard because of that kind of traditional model of doing worship. Yeah, I think a challenge for, for anyone in ministry, and particularly for, for pastors standing up or sitting down, however they give their sermon, is that your, the competition for your, the, the congregant's time is the congregant's cell phone. If someone is sitting there, I mean, again, we hope people don't look at their phones during worship. We know what happens. And especially right now, everything's virtual. You have no idea if someone's multitasking, you know, being on their phone. In everyone's hand or pocket is a device that can take them to whatever they want. That is not you talking. (laughs) So just remember that, again, it is very important for the congregant, the person listening, to try to pay attention and maybe work some of these strategies in to try to be more involved and engaged in worship. But yeah, like you were saying, Lee, it's also on the part of the pastor as well as the the church body as a whole to try to find ways to be engaging for the folks in the pews or in this case, um, worshiping over Zoom and trying to keep their attention because it's very easy to get distracted when you have a little device that can take you anywhere and look up anything at any time. So joining us today is a very special guest to help us discuss a very interesting and relevant question for for today's congregations. Joining us is Toby Weissmiller, an elder at Colesville Presbyterian Church in Maryland. And Toby is going to help us talk about a question related to uh, Black Lives Matter signs and and putting up signs related to uh, justice issues that we care about. So the question reads, will our church get vandalized if we put up a Black Lives Matter sign? 
Toby, wh- what do you think about this question based on your experience with your congregation? Well, I think it is a very relevant question, and I um, suspect that many congregations are having the same sort of dialogue and consideration about if they weigh in on this topic. Our experience, we are a suburban congregation, and we're on kind of a busy thoroughfare, and so we have big signage that we put out and change periodically in front of the church. Well, after the uh, George Floyd killing, we had a session meeting and the Justice Committee brought forward this uh, statement that we wanted to share our concerns with the congregation about what had happened. And we also um, wanted to display our Black Lives Matter banner. So session was very supportive of that. And uh, right away, early in June, we put out a large, like, I don't know, four by 12 banner in front of the church saying Black Lives Matter. So that went on uh, a couple of weeks. And then around the 4th of July holiday, we saw that the banner was gone, completely missing. And, and someone had taken it down. We then, we had another banner on hand. And so we replaced that one with securing it with some cables and padlocks so that it couldn't be easily removed. And the following, I don't know, it was well into July. The first thing was that the, the word black was spray painted over. And then later, about a week later, we decided to leave it up just as a statement of our uh, commitment to continue the message. Uh, Someone used some kind of a blade to slash and to cut out the black word. And so at that point, it was pretty tattered. We decided we'd leave, leave it up a short time while we ordered another banner. It was interesting because that's when we first got engagement from neighbors. And uh, the church was closed then because of COVID and had been closed since March. So there weren't people at the church. The phone was on the answering machine and, you know, we have the website, but people couldn't speak directly to the church. Well, we started getting emails from neighbors saying how concerned they were about the banner being vandalized. And we even went about a week after this last incident, I went by the church and a person had put up a small Black Lives Matter flag on our tattered banner. And there was a note attached to it that was obviously written by a child who said how much she or he supported our message and what we were trying to do. So shortly after that, uh, that didn't weather too well. And so we took the whole display down and uh, we were waiting for another banner to be uh, made and delivered. And then Soon after that, like within a couple of days, I was at the church again, and there was a new Black Lives Matter banner hanging. (laughs) And so I went out to sort of look at it and check it out and stuff. And a gentleman stopped by and said, I hope you don't mind. I wanted to have a banner up since yours was destroyed. So we got acquainted, and this was a gentleman who lived across the street from the church and obviously was very committed to... um, displaying this message. So anyway, he was going to leave his banner up until 
um, we got a replacement. Well, a little while later, that went on for maybe a month, and then his banner was also slashed and destroyed. So then we go to a yard sign strategy where we had uh, yard signs made, which weren't so expensive, and uh, we posted them. We had I organized some crews of people and someone would put them out in the morning and someone would take them in at night so that they wouldn't be vandalized or destroyed in any way. And we did that for a while until we got a new banner. Then we we hung a new banner. This would be into August. And that one also was vandalized after a period of time. And our friend across the street just happened to have a backup banner. <laughs> And so he put it up and then he began the ritual of putting the banner up every morning and taking it down at night. And meanwhile, we're getting really a lot of positive uh, visibility and feedback from the neighbors through email and through the website. And also people were sending contributions to replace the banners, knowing that they were um, an expense. And I think we got over $1,000 in contributions over a period of just a few months, and we didn't solicit any of those gifts. So that was really a great reinforcement um, to have that kind of affirmation from the neighborhood. And finally, later in the, I guess it may have been in September, someone took the neighbor's sign that he had posted in front of the church or his banner in the daylight. He had, you know, been careful to do it morning and take it in at night. Well, someone evidently came in the daylight hour and took the banner. So at that point, we had one last banner left that was the church's. So we put it up and he again took it down every night. And that lasted until we the session decided that we would stop the banners before the election, knowing that that was probably a pretty politically volatile time. So we stopped the banners in... Um, late October. And we had curious people emailing the church, why have you taken your banner still? <laughs> so people were uh, certainly watching and uh, wondering what was happening. So we did develop a little email list of our supporters, which we've I've continued to kind of update as um, our campaign continues. And we hope to, once we're open again, uh, invite those people to join us for some fellowship or some activity and acknowledge their support and how much it meant to the church. So our last effort was for Black History Month. We wanted to, you know, celebrate that occasion. And again, I sent a communication to our email friends in the neighborhood that we would be hanging the banner again in February. And our neighbor across the street said, volunteered right away that he would be glad to put it out and take it in each night. So that, we did that. And um, it was again later in that month damaged. And so we had to, at the end of February, we would stop the, the campaign as we had planned and so that's where we are at this moment. And I think there probably will be a moment, well, when we decide to um, pull it out and pull the banner out, get our message out again. Um, Toby, I, I really appreciate you sharing that story because it illustrates the multifaceted and multidimensional nature of when a community of faith decides that there's a message that it wants to support and refuses to to be silenced about it while also at the same time facing backlash from certain community members 
not necessarily of the congregation, but in the wider local community and also support from local community members as well. Um, I just love the idea that it, what seems as a very, a very simple or a single action suddenly has all of these effects and outreaching that you don't expect. Some congregations might experience vandalism to their actual building, at, you know, in, in response sort of to the original question, and some won't. And some may just simply have their signs defaced and vandalized. Um, but I'm very, I'm very grateful to hear that you know, there is a congregation out there that is putting that sign back up with the help and support and care of the local community. I just think that's beautiful. Well, it was certainly an unexpected benefit. Uh, when we started this, we thought we were just, you know, saying a message uh, on behalf of the church. But obviously, the um, George Floyd incident really set off a great firestorm among people who maybe hadn't been moved to think about, you know, what criminal justice has has become. So I do think that it was an opportunity and um, it really, I think we're very glad we went through the struggle. So for our resource roundup segment today, we're going to be mentioning the gun violence policy of the Presbyterian Church USA, which is called Gun Violence Gospel Values mobilizing in response to God's call. This policy and report was approved by the 219th General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in 2010. And it's a really great policy that challenges our society's fatalism and numbness in accepting the highest gun death rates in the world, reviews past church positions, and proposes a new spiritual awakening approach, which is a church-related community-based strategy. It looks at our culture of violence acceptance with its undercurrents of fear and desperation. We really encourage people to check this out because not only does it outline policy, it also provides additional um, resources that people might be interested in, including how guns and violence is incorporated into the language that we use. And it provides a list of other resources that people can check out. Both online for further study, it also includes study questions for congregations so that they can take this resource and use it, say, in a Sunday school or as a discussion, a discussion piece. So we really recommend that people check out Gun Violence Gospel Values, mobilizing in response to God's call. It's available from the Presbyterian Mission Agency, just presbyterianmission.org backslash resource backslash gun violence gospel values. We highly recommend that everyone check this out as gun violence will continue to unfortunately be a major issue that we all have to live with and increasingly are becoming more aware of. So check out Gun Violence Gospel Values. This has been the Matter of Faith podcast brought to you by the Presbyterian Peacemaking Program and Unbound. If you would like to submit a question for discussion, you can do so at faithpodcast at peaceusa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. See you next time. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Thank you for watching episode eight of A Matter of Faith, a Presby podcast.
Again, don't forget to subscribe to your favorite podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us bring more faith-based content to you.